0: Good morning, Bridgeway. Good morning. So today we are continuing our series that Don and Darren have begun: uh, healthy church, biblical church, our discipleship journey. Uh, last week, Darren was speaking about membership and our uh, sort of foundational verses that we have established for uh, Healthy Church, Biblical Church is Jesus' great commandment and Jesus' great commission um, that we can read about in Matthew, you can put on the next slide there. Um, Love God, love people. That's the shortest way to summarize it. (laughs) And then the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus. And recently we've made a change to our uh, vision uh, statement, mission statement, that it is now transformation in Jesus. And um, what what, what does that mean? And why are we placing such an importance on that? Well, we want all our ministries here to be about transformation. That all ministries, great and small, would be a catalyst for um, that transformational power of the cross, the message of the gospel, the power of the gospel, not just cultural conformity, but actual alteration by the Holy Spirit, to become like Christ. And the next slide, um, you can see um, what we've been talking about recently and trying to sort of uh, put this puzzle together and explain how this actually uh, will work out in in the daily transactions of the church. So this leads us to today's topic, which is biblical giving and how does Biblical giving play out with uh, our discipleship journey? Um, That's the next slide. (laughs) And so, um, before uh, we get into this, I know some of you probably are having a little bit of a panic attack, Um, and your guard might have come up a bit because, oh no, here comes the money talk. I think this picture says it it all. (laughs) Um, This is probably meme-worthy for those of you who follow memes. Um, So I want it. Before I go any farther, I want to just um, sort of give some assurance to people. Like, is this going to be about? You know, you're not you're not writing your check enough. Your your checkbook isn't getting used enough, and you're not giving enough money, and our church budget is suffering, that is not what this is going to be about. Okay, um, I could have gone that way, and churches have gone that way in the past. I was, I was talking to my dad just yesterday, actually, um, and he was telling me in the 60s the church treasurer actually had a formula, and he would count how many pigs you own, and based on that, he would calculate how much money you should be giving to the church. Or, uh, if you had such and such, so many acres of land, then you should give this amount to the church. And it was all down to this perfect science. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, we're, we don't do that anymore. I think it's good that we moved on from that kind of idea. Um, but that does kind of lead us to the question, well, if, if we're not going to give by that sort of motivation, like you have to give this much, what is the motivation? Why? Why do we give? And you may think, well, I know why I give, and it's this: you know, I have this really pure motive all the time. Um, of course, that person at the end, end of the pew, they don't, they're not so pure. But I know why I give. Well, actually, it's quite complicated because, as human beings, we are complex, and we don't even know ourselves sometimes why we do it. So here are some possible reasons you can see. um, What do I give? What do I give money? What do I give resources? What do I give time? Some of these are, I would say, good motivations, and some of them aren't. but we've all probably used these from time to time in our lives, especially for those of us who are older. Um, You can see one of them there says reward. The idea that if I give, God will reward me. In fact, if I give such and such an amount, God will not only reward me that amount back, but a bunch of extra on top of that. So if I give $100, God will give me $1,000. If I give $1,000, God will give me a million dollars. It's that easy, that's just how it works. Um, You're not gonna hear that here. I I really don't like those ideas, I think those are false. I would even call them heretical. Uh, That's not how God operates. It's easy to find that if you take a scripture here and a scripture there, but if you take the Bible as a whole, the prosperity gospel, it, it falls apart. It, 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 doesn't, it can't stand under the scrutiny of the entire uh, book, the entire Bible. Another weird one you might wonder why is it up there is control. Giving money for control. Well, um, this does happen too, unfortunately. So I'm gonna give this amount of money so that when the leadership of the church has to make a decision, I will intervene and tell them what to do because I have given money, so they should listen to me. So, (laughs) right? Um, These are not the kind of motivations that we should have. Now, those of us who are familiar with our Bibles and have read the Old Testament and the New Testament many times, we know that there is a lot. It's actually remarkable how much Scripture is dedicated to helping people who are in need, helping people who are going through a rough time, giving to the poor, to the disadvantaged, to the orphan, to the widow. You could pick almost any book of the Bible at random and just start reading it, and you would come across something like that. And God is concerned about these people. And in turn, he expects his people to care for them too, not just saying, "Oh, that's too bad," but to actually do something about it. So here's one, just one example. First John three uh, says, "If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person?" Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. God loves the cheerful giver. We heard that this morning. So, giver. (laughs) This is, uh, I didn't come up with this, but uh, I was going through my yearbook from Bible college. I do it once in a while, it's good for a laugh and you know, good memories. And my friend Joel Harder, this was his final quote in his yearbook. Um, I thought it was kind of cool. Now, what does it mean, God loves a cheerful giver, and how does it play out? So Alicia read uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapters eight and nine. We want to look more deeply into those texts and what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians and why. So uh, we need to get a bit of a context. So we have a map here of um, the world that Paul was living in. And almost in the very center of the map, you can see Corinth. So this is the city that uh, where we get the letters to the Corinthians. And so Corinth is uh, a Greek city. And if you start heading north, you eventually reach a, a different region called Macedonia. And this is where we get the cities of Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea. And then if you keep going around, Eventually, you get to the other side of the Aegean Sea, pretty much straight west of Corinth, um, or sorry, straight east of Corinth, and you reach Ephesus. This is probably where Paul was writing from. He was in Ephesus, and he was writing to Corinth, uh, addressing some of their problems. And then in the lower right corner, you can see, tucked down there, Jerusalem in the province of Judea. And so these are the cities that are part of the story here. So we need to understand what what is happening in these regions. So, uh, you might realize, probably correctly, that Jerusalem is the odd man out here. Jerusalem is different. All the other cities are Greek, Um, people speak Greek, people know Greek. Um, They follow Greek customs, Greek culture, and then you have these weird people in the the corner, these Jews who do everything backwards, seemingly. They have a different religion, they have a different language, very different perspective on um, just about every issue, and I'm sure a lot of people thought they were just so strange, and it would be nice if they would just go away. And you would think that the rest of The rest of the cities, Corinth, Philippi, Ephesus, they're all more or less the same. They're Greek, Um, and then down here we have Jerusalem, which is Jewish. Well, it's a little more complicated than that, actually. Um, And I'm gonna explain why I believe that there was a rivalry that existed between the Macedonian churches and the churches of Corinth and that southern region. And why was there a rivalry? So if you go back roughly 400 years before Paul, you get, um, you can go to the next slide, you get this map of the kingdom of Macedon in the north, run by Philip. And the city of Philippi, where we get the book of Philippians, was actually um, named after this king Philip. And king Philip started to expand his kingdom and eventually started heading down towards Corinth and wanted to conquer all of that area for himself. But then he got assassinated, and he couldn't quite finish the job, so then his son took over. And you might not have heard of Philip before, but you certainly have heard of his son, Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great, in a very short time, finished the job, took over all of that area, what we would now call Greece, And you would think if Alexander was smart, he would just stop right there and be happy with that. (laughs) But he wasn't. He decided to uh, take on what is called the Persian Empire. And on the next slide, you can see the size difference here. So most of this map is the Persian Empire. It goes all the way from India to Greece and parts of Egypt. And you have this little Greek group over here, and somehow Alexander decides, yeah, I think I can conquer all that. We can do it. <laughs> and he does it in 10 years. It, it, it's impossible. This is not possible. Who would even think of doing it? Um, well, he managed to do it. A, a current, and I was trying to think, what would be a current analogy that would make us understand how crazy this was. Let's imagine all the people of Newfoundland getting together for a meeting and deciding, yeah, I think it's time for us to expand and we've got some really good, brilliant new military strategy. So let's go. So they decide to take on the United States. Newfoundland versus the United States. And they do it <laughs> It wasn't even that hard. <laughs> um, that's how crazy this was. so And Alexander managed to do this. Um, and even with that success, though, that military success, the resentment that would have still been there between southern Greece and northern Greece, between Macedonians and, and the Corinthians, um, would have. it it, it would have been hard to shake. Let's just say it that way, hard to shake. And for me, I don't really understand what it's like to be conquered like that, but I do understand what it's like to be part of a rivalry. I grew up in a small town, and you can see it here. Um, If you go to Saskatoon and then take the Yellowhead 16 highway northwest towards Battleford and Edmonton, eventually you get to the town of Langham and you cross the river on the Borden Bridge, and you get to the town of Borden. And then if you go another 12 kilometers, you hit the town of Radisson. Well, I grew up in Borden. Went from kindergarten to grade 12 in Borden. It was great, loved it. Um, before I remember, I knew I was supposed to hate Radisson. That was just expected. And not, it wasn't from my parents, my parents, as I look back, actually we're trying to um, reduce this rivalry. We would go to Radisson, we would go to the restaurant. We would go to Radisson to go to the butcher and get to get meat from, I remember watching the butcher with his machine, I thought it was so cool as a kid how he would cut the meat. Um, but, But that was frowned upon by a lot of people. You're in Borden, you shouldn't be going to Radisson to do business, you know. And uh, when we played sports, if we were playing volleyball against Dalmany or, or Langham or Delisle, and we lost, eh, well, we lost. But losing to Radisson was not an option. That just wasn't done. and. Uh, so you had to make sure you were out on your best game for those, because for those, losing to them, that, that's just not acceptable. And where this played out the most strongly, with the most emotion, was the hockey games. So we had a senior hockey team of, you know, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, in the Fort Carleton Hockey League, and if we were playing Radisson, it was standing room only. And I distinctly remember going and just yelling my, my lungs out, screaming for my borden Bruins. <laughs> and a normal thing that happened, again, this is normal, is, of course, it's hockey. People are going to get in fights, drop the gloves, and get in fights on the ice. That was expected, almost. Uh, what you might not expect is that the wives of the players in the stands were fighting, too. So. And as a kid, I was like, oh yeah, this is just normal. I, it, it didn't seem strange. It didn't seem like something you question. You just, yeah. Uh, I'm sure Radisson did something dirty, and that's why it's happening. Of course, it was always, it was always them. Um, and so this rivalry was... It was I, I never stopped and thought, where did this come from? Why do I feel this way? No, it's just part of who you are if you live in Borden. Um, We had a 100-year celebration in Borden, not that long ago. And during this time, somebody um, decided to look through the history books and come up with, you know, what's happened in the last 100 years, and let's celebrate. And it was only at this point that I found out where this rivalry even came from. In 1908, there was a soccer game between Borden and Radisson, and it ended with a controversial goal. And from that point on, the towns had to hate each other. And, <laughs> and um, I brought the, Darren was laughing at me that I brought this big atlas to the church today. So, like, what, what, is, what are you doing with this thing? <laughs> this atlas has memories of this rivalry. Like, what? Well, you see, when I got married, we got a bunch of gifts from. People and one of, one of the gifts was gifts, gift certificates to McNally Robinson Bookstore in Saskatoon. And so we went to this bookstore with these gift certificates after our honeymoon, and we thought, hey, one of the things we should do is get a really nice atlas for our family. It's just this sweet atlas, probably expensive, but we should get it so we have this, because eventually our kids are gonna want to study the atlas or whatever. Actually, they don't really, but... Um, but I like, I'm kind of a map, map geek, I guess, I like looking at maps, and um, when I was looking through this and we were deciding which atlas should we get, because there's a lot of really nice atlases, and then I came across, oh, Western Canada map, Oh, okay, Saskatoon's on here, Swift Current's on here, um, Stewart Valley even made it, Borden is on here, nice. No Radisson. <laughs> we should buy this one. <laughs> <laughs> so even after I had been not living in the town for for like over ten years, it was still affecting me. It was still influencing my behavior. So this leads me to back to our Corinthians and Macedonians and and How much did this rivalry play a part in in what was happening? Because Paul doesn't really act like there's a rivalry. He doesn't address the rivalry, even though it was probably there. I'm guessing Paul looked at the situation and thought, it doesn't matter. In more than one place, Paul says, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, male, female, slave, or free. None of that matters anymore. In Christ, we're all the same. It's all the same. It doesn't matter if you're a rich landowner or you're a beggar. You're just as lost without Christ. And you're just as saved with Christ. So these divisions and these rivalries and these resentments and jealousies, they don't matter anymore. At least that's what I think he probably was how he looked at it. Now, we also know from this letter to the Corinthians and other letters that Paul was collecting money because he was looking at this and saying, well, you know, in Jerusalem, the churches there are going through an extremely hard time. It's really bad. And we should collect some money, and and we'll take it down there and help them. And these churches, Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, they said, yeah, good idea, we wanna be part of that. We will join in that, and uh, we wanna we want help our brothers and sisters in Christ. Doesn't matter if they're Jewish or not, we wanna help. So it's in the midst of this that Paul now was writing to the Corinthians a second time and saying, um, I'm concerned about you, that maybe you're not gonna give the money you had promised. Okay. Now, before we get back to this, don't put this slide on yet. I'm going to put a couple of words on the screen. This is a bit of audience participation now. I'm going to put a couple of words on the screen. Don't blurt out anything quite yet. I'll give you the, I'll give you the cue when you can blurt. Okay. <laughs> um, I just want you to blurt out how do you pronounce these words when they come on the screen. Okay? Don't think about it too hard. Just, just say them. All right, so here we go. First word, how do you pronounce this word? Okay, that's the first one. Now, don't say anything quite yet. And the second word, so next slide, okay. So, how do you say the first word? Okay, I'm, I'm actually hearing two options. Refuse. Refuse. Refuse, which one is it? Um, Okay, how about um, the second word? Object. Object. Object, okay. (laughs) Is it object or object? Like, well, what's the difference? It's the same word. It, It isn't, actually. Those are two different words. Object and object are two different words. They're spelled the same, but we use them differently. If I put them into sentences, if I give you a context, it's easier to tell, right? So here we go. I refuse to pick up the refuse that I found all over the basement. He did object to the lawyer, bringing that object into the courtroom. What is happening here? Well, it's because some of the words are nouns and some of them are verbs and depending on whether it's a noun or a verb changes the way you say it. Now, this is, this is weird. Language is so bizarre. Not all words do this in English, only some. Um, if I do it wrong, you can tell. He did object to the lawyer, bringing that object into the courtroom. You think, like, well, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, because it's wrong. Um, I don't know, I'm, I'm actually doubting that anyone ever has ever explained this to you. Maybe, but probably not. You just picked up on it by learning language and listening to people talk. You just picked up on the fact that, no, when, when, I, when object's a noun, I say object. When it's a verb, I say object. So this is the same, the same similar kind of thing is happening in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and nine, because. Paul keeps using this word, charis. Charis is a Greek word, and sometimes it's a noun, sometimes it's a verb, sometimes it's an adjective. It depends. It depends on what's going on and the words that are before it and after it. How do we translate this word? We think, oh, well, translators, they always translate the word the same way every time. Not true. You have to translate based on context, based on the meaning around it. And sometimes that can actually be really hard. And this is why, if you have a different Bible translation, sometimes the words sound very different. Because translators have to make a call. They have to make a decision. How do we translate this in this particular instance? Now, you might not know what charis is. Well, it's actually the word grace. So the word grace, it's a very common word in the New Testament. We sang about it a lot this morning already. It's part of the message of Jesus, grace. So grace is usually translated as favor, an undeserved kindness. Um, It's something God gives people. They don't deserve it, but he gives it to them anyway. And he's just asking people to humble themselves and take it. I'm offering you this gift. You can just take it. That's often the way we think of this word. And that's not wrong. I'm not saying that's wrong. But I just wanted us to understand that sometimes it means something else. Or it has a subtle difference in meaning. Usually we think of grace having to do with salvation. Why am I saved? Well, I'm saved because of grace. I'm saved by grace. I didn't do anything. Jesus did everything. And so now I have this gift that I can take if I want to take it. don't have to take it, but I can choose to take this free gift. And Paul uses this word a lot, especially in books like Romans and Galatians, to explain salvation. Now in... 2 Corinthians eight and nine, it's a little different. So I'm gonna really, I'm going to, this is gonna go by quick and I apologize, it's, it's a time factor. <laughs> but I'm gonna just quickly go through how charis is translated differently depending on the verse. Okay, so here we go. So in this, uh, in these two chapters, we have charis being used 10 times, the highest concentration in the entire Bible. So grace Caris of God, given to the churches of Macedonius. The privilege, Caris, of sharing in ministry to the saints. Complete this generous, charis undertaking among you. As you excel in everything, excel also in this generous, charis undertaking. for you know the generous charis act of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks, Caris, be to God while administering this generous caris undertaking god is able to provide you with every blessing caris in abundance the surpassing grace caris god has given you and thanks caris be to god for his indescribable gift so we can see these statements provide several different angles on the grace of god god gives grace but the Corinthians and the Macedonians also administer grace as they minister to others. And everyone, including those who are receiving this ministry, give grace or give thanks to God. All of this is God's grace. It's pretty cool and actually a little bit overwhelming trying to understand it. That everything that happens, God giving to us, us giving to others, us getting involved in the lives of others, us being thankful to God and thankful to each other, it's all grace. It's it's deeper than just being saved from our sins. I want to just talk a little bit quickly about how Paul describes the Macedonians, and then what we know of the Corinthians from Paul's letters, two letters to the Corinthians. So, the Macedonians are described like this. They had down-to-depth poverty. That's the actual word-for-word translation. Down-to-depth poverty, not just poverty. You think that's, poverty by itself sounds pretty rough. Poverty. No, no, this was not just poverty. Down-to-depth poverty, rock-bottom poverty. Scraping the bottom of the barrel, poverty dirt-poor poverty, however you want to describe it. This is not fun, but an abundance of joy with that. And they also had on top of their poverty trials of affliction. Yet through it, they were rich in being generous to other people. This all seems very irrational and not logical. How can people who are poor Be generous. How can people going through hard times have joy? But this is what happens when an actual genuine encounter happens with Jesus. This is actually what happens. It's not supposed to be unusual for those who follow God. This is actually kind of normal. Okay, so that's the Macedonians. Now, the Corinthians... Um, It was kind of hard to narrow this down, but I narrowed it down to five. Uh, These churches were Jewish, but mostly Gentile Christians. They lived in a very prosperous city, fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, very prosperous, lots of money floating around. Um, And they also had a lot of temples where you could, um, there were temple prostitutes, and it was a very popular thing to come to Corinth and partake in that. Um, The church struggled with division. They had little camps that seemed to be fighting with each other, and they had doubts about Paul's leadership and Paul's apostleship and whether they should listen to Paul or not. Uh, The church members came from a wide variety of uh, socioeconomic standings, so the very affluent down to the very poor. And the church members were amicable or friendly with outsiders, which sounds like a good thing, but it was to the point where they were allowing that to distract them from the truth and to conform to the surrounding culture. Okay, so this is the Corinthians. And so Paul has to deal with with this. And um, Paul's strategy is unique he basically has a three point way of of dealing with this. One, he says, look at Jesus. Jesus was rich, but he became poor so that you could become rich too. Two, the Macedonians, look at them. These people were ridiculously poor, but they gave, and they gave more than they really were able to give. Why? Because they had experienced God's grace. That completely altered their behavior. And three, Paul refuses to give a command or order to the Corinthians. Even though he had authority to do so, he won't give a command. It's strange. Usually in a situation like this, Paul would say, well, don't listen to me. Look at what it says in Isaiah, or look what it says in Deuteronomy, or look what David said, or look what Abraham did, and he'll use some Old Testament passage to prove his point. For example, I just thought, well, Paul's not going to do it, so this is what he could have done. Uh, In Haggai, we read, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. So you should give. Or he could have said, in Malachi, it, re- it says, you're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. So you guys better start tithing. Paul doesn't do that. He could have done that quite easily. Instead, he's like, no, no, no. If you look at Jesus, and you look at what, how Jesus changed the Macedonians, that's enough. That's enough of an example for us to follow. Um, R.V.G. Tasker, who's a biblical scholar, he summarized the Corinthians, uh, these two chapters of 2 Corinthians, this way. It is not surprising that two whole chapters of this epistle should be occupied with a subject, and that the writer should deal with it so thoroughly. And with such insight that we have here what might aptly be called a philosophy of Christian giving which has lessons to teach the church in every age and i would agree with tasker on this if you want to find out what is giving supposed to look like these are huge chapters that we could study over and over again to understand what is the expectation for giving. Before we're quite done here, I just want to mention two other things from these chapters. In 2 Corinthians uh, 8 and 9, we have this metaphor. It's one verse, and this is a great verse, by the way. If you want to memorize a verse, and like, I just, I can't memorize too much at once, but I could memorize one verse, this is a good verse. Second Corinthians eight, verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, I know that sometimes this verse gets misused to tell people, hey, if you just follow Jesus, You can be a millionaire. You can win Lotto 649. Jesus will tell you the numbers. It's that easy. Um, Well, no, that's a really bad, really bad interpretation of these verses. Because it says Jesus was rich and became poor. Okay, hold on, hold on. So when they're using the word rich here, that can't mean I go to bed on a stack of $100 bills, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, that, that's how rich I am. Um, because Jesus never had that. Jesus was in heaven with God the Father, fellowshipping uh, in his presence. And then he became the baby, and the Christmas story played out, and he walked among us. Before that, he was in God's presence. That's rich. God's presence in eternity. And Jesus gave that up temporarily so that he could be one of us regular Joe Schmoes. And through that act and through his death and resurrection, we now have the chance to be rich like he was. It's a great metaphor, it's this economic metaphor. I, don't, I, I think it's the only place in, in the Bible where this economic metaphor is provided and it's a really great summary of what the gospel message is. The other thing I wanted to mention lastly is in chapter eight, verse five. If you read this, you might have missed it, but it says the Macedonians gave themselves to the Lord. Giving money and resources was an understandable consequence So if you've missed everything else, this might be the thing that I want you to remember is they're not just giving money. They're not just giving their time. They're giving themselves. And things haven't changed. It's still the same God, it's still the same Jesus asking, will you give yourself to me and to the ministries that we have for you? So, what is our response to all of this? Well, I would say, um, no matter how much you want to give um, or not give, it's an incredible privilege to be part of what God is doing. God is doing stuff. God is building his kingdom here in our midst, in this city, in this country. Sometimes it seems like that isn't happening because there's so much negative stuff and we're disappointed sometimes with what the government is doing, but God is building his kingdom and he's saying, you can be part of it. It's there for you. It might not look like what you think, but do you want to join in? And however you want to do that, maybe you don't have this, and this is something you could ask God for. God, I don't really have a grace. I don't have a passion for a ministry or an organization or a movement or something that I'm really, really excited about. God can give that to you. Or maybe you have that. Maybe you have that in abundance and you've got too much to do because you're excited about that and that and that and this and it's all great. I don't want to offend anybody here, but you know, our church, we're just a bunch of regular people. I don't think anyone here is winning the Nobel Prize or becoming a Stanley Cup champion this year. We're, you know, we're We're just regular people. And you may think, yeah, I'm just a farmer, or I'm just a teacher, or I'm just a hairdresser, or, uh, well, I'm retired. I don't even really know what I am anymore. And um, I'm just a student. What, you know, none of that matters. None of that matters. It doesn't matter. We are called to love wherever we are. We are called to give wherever we are, whatever we have. I mentioned the rivalries and, you know, how this rivalry (laughs) actually altered which atlas I would buy. Seems silly. But we do this to ourselves sometimes. We have rivalries with each other. Sometimes we don't want to admit that they're there. Maybe they're in the back of our minds. But they shouldn't be there anymore. And if they are, we need to ask God, Help me give this rivalry away so I don't carry it anymore. I don't want to continue living with this. That person over there on the other side of the church, they hurt me. I don't want that anymore. I don't want the hurt. I don't want the rivalry. I don't want the mistrust. We're all in this together. God calls us to give. Remember, We don't own any of this stuff. God made everything. God owns everything. For a limited time offer, you get to take care of part of it. For a limited time. And what are you doing with it? And I know this is tough. We're living in crazy times. Worst inflation in 40 years. Will I even have enough money to retire on? Will I have enough money to pay for my kids' schooling? It's it's stressful. Lose sleep over this stuff. God is asking us to lay it down, give it to him. It's not our stuff. God will take care of us somehow. It's hard to trust sometimes. It's hard to let go. But this is what God is asking us to do. I'll call up the worship team to conclude our service.